Okay, we're going to start by reading from uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. <clears throat> o Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls, of them, pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his nets. He gathers them up in his drag nets, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his nets and burns incense to his drag nets. For by his nets he lives in luxury, enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him and he is arrogant, never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors arise suddenly? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim, because you have plundered many nations, and peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you've shed man's blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it, it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
if you were here last week, you will recall that we began to look at a certain issue or a certain uh, question or topic as we've been looking through the book of Habakkuk, which is this. How to respond, how do we respond when painful prayers receive puzzling answers uh, from a mysterious God? We began to look at that last week by looking at Habakkuk's first complaint, his first painful prayer. And um, interestingly, as we, as we did that, um, I, I used an illustration from Indiana Jones to try and emphasize the, the drama of the crisis uh, that Habakkuk was facing. And um, uh, a slight humorous bit of feedback got back to me that in describing this perilous scenario in perhaps which the, the lead actress is facing almost certain doom, what I meant to say um, was that she was a damsel in distress. Uh, only after the second congregation had met did I realize that what I'd been saying all day was damson in distress. Uh, if the situation got really bleak, she could have just said, don't worry about me, save yourselves. After all, I'm just a plum. Um, <laughs> so thank you to uh, North Congregation for pointing out my error. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, today is, is part two of, of Habakkuk, as it were. Part two of looking at that question, how to respond when painful prayers receive puzzling answers from a mysterious God. In a sense, however, it's slightly more accurate to call it round two, because it's a bit more of a wrestling match. Uh, Habakkuk is still very much in questioning, complaining mode, attempting to wrestle uh, with the Almighty God. Um, a slightly uneven match. Uh, when I was about seven, I attempted to wrestle my brother on a few occasions. And uh, the, the problem with that was that I was seven and, uh, and he was 16. Uh, so, so he had a slight advantage. It wasn't an equal match. And what he would do for a while, uh, well, he would allow me to wrestle with him. He would allow me to kind of throw at him my best moves before demonstrating what we both knew, that I was little and that he was big. And so there would come a point in our little wrestling match uh, when I would just have to accept his superiority. In a sense, that's what's happening with Habakkuk. He's still in wrestling mode. He's still in... Uh, painful prayer mode. He's still questioning, he's still complaining. Some of the things that he asks God uh, come across with a slight critical attitude or critical edge because he's trying to process what we saw was a massive bombshell when God says, yeah, you think the situation in your nation's bad, now I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. I'm sending them. What we saw last time is that as Habakkuk was trying to process that and understand that, what he does is begin to cling to God. He begins to uh, remember and recall things about God. So he says in the beginning of this second complaint, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? He's reminded, God, our almighty God, is from everlasting. He's reminded, no, he's my God. He's my holy one. He's the rock. He is, O rock. As he does that then, as he recounts, he brings to mind what he knows to be true about Almighty God, he comes to certain kind of preliminary conclusion. He he realizes this. He realizes that while God has appointed the Babylonians, it's not to bring about complete annihilation of his people. It's to bring about uh, judgment. It's to bring about punishment. But with punishment 
comes the hope of restoration. And so Habakkuk realizes some of these things. However, his second prayer is still a painful one because it leaves him with questions that are unanswered. How do we handle ourselves when we have unanswered questions with God? The unanswered questions that Habakkuk has are these. In verse 13 he says, Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's just reflected, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That leaves him with an unresolved question. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? He seems in some ways, perhaps, uh, to be even questioning the very character of God. Or maybe admitting, Lord, I don't know how to reconcile this in my mind. I don't know how to work this out in my mind. Your people are a mess. You are raising up a plan that is good, that will bring discipline to your people. But your good plan involves using an evil nation who are more wicked than we are, and they're your tool in our discipline. I don't get it. It's like saying, why are the bad guys getting away with it? Oh God, why are you tolerating wickedness if you are too pure to look upon evil? He has another question that's unresolved at this stage in verse 17. He says, Is he to keep on emptying his nets, destroying nations without mercy? Um, He's just been using an image there, viewing people as fish of the sea that the Babylonians are just plucking out of the water one after another and therefore worshipping their net. Is this just going to go on forever? Are the Babylonians ever going to be checked is there going to be an end? Are they, are they just going to continue to domineer without mercy from here on in? Will this evil, suffering, persecution or misery continue unchecked? And again, behind that, there seems to be um, a question about God's rule. God, are you really in charge? God, are you really in control of world events? Perhaps he's at least admitting Lord, again, I don't know how to reconcile this in my mind. I don't know how to work this one out. Who's in control? Is it Almighty God or is it these pretty fearsome, mighty Babylonians? So, what do we do with our unresolved questions? Where do we go from here? We reflected last time on the importance of finding solid ground, reminding ourselves of who God is, And what he's like. But now we need to find not only solid ground, but the right path uh, that will lead us through. What path do we follow from now? Where do we go from here? In the midst of your own rampaging thoughts and emotions, uh, when life doesn't make sense, what do you do next? What do you do with those unresolved, unanswered questions? Habakkuk took three wise steps as we look at his painful prayer. And we should learn from his example to take the same three steps and encourage other people to take the same three steps. Firstly, he took his unresolved questions to God in prayer. He didn't prematurely make up his own answers and conclude, no, God, I guess you're just not holy after all. God, 
you're no longer in control. Whilst baffled, whilst completely puzzled, he brought his questions to God. Whilst he was thinking, I can't reconcile these questions in my mind, I trust God and I believe God that he is able to bring clarity and answer my questions. This prayer that we're looking at is a very, very painful prayer. However, I believe that elsewhere we encounter the most painful prayer in all of Scripture. And we see that in Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we find him doing exactly the same as Habakkuk in his darkest hour. Let's just read from verse 32 of Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, in his humanity, did not necessarily see the entire big picture of what was about to happen by view of his death on the cross. He did not necessarily, in his humanity, understand everything. The scripture is not lying. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he prayed to his heavenly father, in effect saying, I don't know how to reconcile this, Lord. Up until this point, I have enjoyed the sweetest intimacy in my relationship with you. And now you're telling me, now I'm aware that I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm going to take upon myself the fullness of your wrath. I'm going to be as separated from you, my heavenly father, as it is possible to be. And this is in your will. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He took, Jesus took his unresolved questions to God in the garden as he prayed. This is what Habakkuk is doing here with his unresolved questions. Secondly, Habakkuk leaves the questions with God and waits. Habakkuk does not continue his prayer endlessly. He doesn't wake up every morning and every day, and repeat his unresolved questions. When am I getting my answers? God, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Are you really in control? Now, he, he takes his questions. They are, they are real questions. And he takes them to God, and he leaves them there. Because it says in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He's using the language of a watchman. And so at the time, uh, different fortified cities would have people who stood on the walls or stood on the ramparts or stood on a certain tower and they, they looked to the horizon. They, they were looking. And in a sense, they were looking for 
uh, any threatening army that might be, might be coming their way. Habakkuk isn't lo- looking for a threat, but he's adopting the same stance. He's giving God his full attention, as it were. He, is, he has brought his questions to God. Now, attentively, he is, he is listening and he is waiting. The alternative is to keep on hammering away at our perplexing questions, which can and often will cultivate anxiety. It's like um, I, I'm the proud owner of a metallic beige Skodophobia, of which I am very happy. On occasion, it has been known to break down. And uh, on those occasions, what I tend to do is think, I don't know that much about cars. Uh, I will take, them to my tr- I'll take it to my trusted mechanic. I'll park the car by his garage. I'll post the keys through his door. I've already called him. He knows it's there. And uh, I will wait until he gets back in contact with me to tell me what is the problem and what has to be done to fix the car. What I don't do, because I don't know much about cars, is start tinkering. But I suppose I could. Before I took it into the, into the garage, uh, I, could, I, could, I could have a tinker. I could have a look. I could try and work out, can I, can I fix this car by myself? And after a few seconds, I'd realize, no, I can't. And so I'd bring up my mechanic, who I trust very much. He's a good guy. Now, what I don't do, having taken my car in to be fixed... I don't knock on his door every five minutes. See, actually, I've had another idea. I think I might know how to fix this. Step aside, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to try and fix my own car. And, oh, no, that that didn't work. Okay, it's back over to you. I'll I'll go back home. Just give me a call when it's all sorted. And then, oh, but but I'm anxious about my car. So I I knock on his door again, and I try and make some other suggestions, or I I try and, I I repeat the question again. Uh, What's wrong with my car? Why is my car not working? No, I trust my mechanic. And so at the right time, he comes back to me and he tells me what the issue is. And um, do I then have more faith in my mechanic to fix my car than I have faith in my God to answer perplexing situations, painful prayers that actually I haven't got the faintest clue about? I, I can't really tinker with this. I can, I can find some solid ground, but I'm not, I'm not just going uh, to discover all the answers to my questions by my own intellect. Now, let's take them to God. Now, a question might arise at that point. Well, what about persisting in prayer? Surely the scripture says a lot. Surely Jesus teaches about being persistent in prayer. In Luke 18, right at the beginning there, Jesus teaches a parable about the persistent widow, in order to make the point that we should pray, not lose hearts, and keep praying, keep praying, keep bringing our requests, keep bringing uh, our prayers before Almighty God. So, Habakkuk here isn't doing that. How do we marry the two? How does that really work? I think the occasion where we should be cautious in how we are persistent with our prayers is when those prayers begin with the word, why? When we have questions that begin with the word, why, if we keep on going, 
with that question, why, why, why God, why God, why is this happening? Then what we can do is just cultivate in ourselves, not faith, not trust in God, but anxiety and panic. If there are questions in our mind, is God really in control? And if we keep hammering in a way with the question why, then maybe we're just starting to persuade ourselves, well, God's not in control, clearly. And that is a recipe, at least, for anxiety. But at worst, it is a recipe uh, for hardness of heart. Where actually we stop believing in God and his power to answer prayers. And we try tinkering, try resolving it ourselves. We try, uh, we develop a hard heart. So we take unresolved questions to God in prayer we leave them there and we wait. doesn't mean we never pray about that particular issue, but maybe those why questions we are cautious with repeating too frequently. Thirdly, what Habakkuk does is expect an answer. He expects an answer. That's what it meant to stand on a watchtower. You're looking to the horizon. He's attentive. He's looking. He's ready. He's waiting. An answer is going to come to me. It hasn't come yet, but I am Adopting that kind of proactive stance. I'm going to give God my attention. I'm going to expect an answer. We see in in Psalm, in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 5 and verse 3. Someone demonstrating a similar attitude in prayer. It says there, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. I'm not just asking a question to try and alleviate some sense of frustration. No, I'm asking a question because I know Almighty God answers. It may not be straight away. It may not be in the way that I was expecting. But God answers prayers. The Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing on this passage Uh, said this, nothing so shows the character of our faith as our conduct and attitude after we have prayed. The men of faith not only prayed, but they expected answers. Sometimes in a panic, we pray to God, then after the panic is over, we forget all about it. The test of our faith is whether we expect an answer, not just taking our anxiety in, out, in, out, in, out. Shake it all about. But taking our prayers to God, taking our questions to God, knowing, Lord, I don't know when the answer's going to come, whether it's going to be, well, I've prayed this morning, maybe it'll come this evening, maybe it'll come in a few days, maybe we have to wait for a week, maybe we have to wait for a few months. But God is in the business of answering prayer. And so as we expect God to answer, and as Habakkuk was expecting an answer, what he was also doing, I believe, is saying to God, God, I also, I'm expecting that you're going to answer, and in some way I'm expecting or I'm prepared that your answer might correct me in some way. I've brought to you my questions. Maybe your answer is going to show me that that actually my own heart needs to be changed in some respect or in some way. And so he's keeping himself in a humble attitude 
towards God. So, another painful prayer, but we can see in how Habakkuk handles himself, how we can handle ourselves, when like Habakkuk, we face uh, darkness, when we face a dark situation, when we face uh, pain, or where in some way uh, we are uh, we're perplexed. Whether that be uh, something that is happening personally in our lives, whether that is something that we are confronted with, actually that's happening in the nation or in the world, which we have uh, perplexed questions about. Habakkuk shows us, even in the, in, in the middle of feeling the turmoil and the emotion of it all and the rawness, he shows us how we can start taking some wise steps towards God in that kind of situation. Secondly, we see yet again uh, puzzling answers from a mysterious God. We reflected on that last time when God said, I'm raising up the Babylonians, I'm, I'm sending a ruthless and evil people to come and punish you. Um, we saw there some puzzling answers. We see again puzzling answers from a mysterious God, but this time... God does provide some clarity, well, does provide more clarity for Habakkuk. Remember, the first question, the first unresolved question that Habakkuk had was, oh God, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Now, God answers that question by sharing his verdict on the Babylonians. In a, in a sense, maybe he had, God had hinted at this in chapter 1, verse 11, when he, said, when he describes the Babylonians as guilty men, whose own strength is their God. God's not going to be indifferent to people who are regarding their own strength as their God. God is a jealous and a holy God. He's not just kind of unaffected by that or or has no opinion about it. And so when the Lord answers, we see uh, particularly from verse 4 onwards, God shares his verdict. His assessment of the Babylonians is this. Uh, It says, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. He is greedy as the grave and is never satisfied. In other words, God tells Habakkuk in no uncertain terms, I do not approve of them. He's saying, I am not indifferent to evil at all. Which should and did provide some reassurance for Habakkuk, and it should do the same for us. God doesn't wear holiness and justice uh, like a cloak or a jacket um, that he could choose to take off at certain times when it suits him. So maybe, oh, the temperature's rising a bit at the moment. I'm a bit uncomfortable now. I'm just going to slip out of this. Or... Fashions seem to be changing. I don't know that I can get away with wearing this anymore. I will, I will slip out of holiness. I'll slip out of justice. I'll dress myself in something else. Because, well, that was just restricting me as well. You see, I'm God. What I really wanted to do was, was kind of climb up this wall. But if I wear holiness and justice, it starts to restrict me. And I can't do exactly what I want to. I will take holiness off. And I'll leave it aside. Maybe I'll wear it again, but not for a while, because I need to raise up the Babylonians. God doesn't wear 
holiness and justice like a cloak. God is holiness. And he is justice. And he's unchanging. That's what he's affirming here. In the midst of perplexing situation, that's what God is affirming here uh, to Habakkuk. There's another unresolved question, which was this. When Habakkuk asks, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Is this just going to continue? Is this just carrying on forever? And God answers this too. And he outlines uh, five woes, five uh, aspects of judgment upon the Babylonians that will, that will come about. And they're described in verses 6 to 20. And in short, what they indicate is that there will be a complete turnaround. We start to see that, first of all, in verses 5 and 6. Describes there what the Babylonians have been doing. It says, he, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives. He takes captive all the peoples. Powerless people gathered to be slaves to uh, Babylonian empire. But then, verse 6, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? In other words, all the people, all the captives, all the people who'd suffered under Babylonian expansion would be the same people who would witness the Babylonian downfall and see this dramatic turnaround. Each, each of the five woes that are then pronounced involve a profound turnaround. And we could look at a few of them. Let's just look at the third woe, which is in uh, verses 12 onwards. It says this, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Babylonians, they've been doing pretty well for themselves. They're building a city, building a, a realm. And the way they've been doing that is with bloodshed and by crime. They've been working hard at their objective of pretty much world domination. So the people have been laboring and they've been exhausting themselves, taking one nation captive after another, shedding more and more innocent blood. But what happens is described a, a, a mighty turnaround. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. In other words, the more they try, the more they build, the further away they go from God, the more unholy and unrighteous they are, the more blood they shed, the more labor they put into that, the greater will be their own judgment by fire. They're exhausting themselves for nothing. Why? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Who's in control? The Babylonians in control? God is in control. And so try as the Babylonians might, actually their might is going to amount ultimately to nothing and God's ultimate aim for the whole of the universe stands firm and sure. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Babylonians have just been raising themselves up against God. Unrighteous, puffed up. God will bring them 
down. Again, for Habakkuk and for us, there is reassurance in this. That maybe as you face personal opposition, the hostility of colleagues or classmates, persecution that might be to come, is God indifferent? Is God, uh, has God somehow given up control? No, God is in control and he's not indifferent to evil. And also, God brings about mighty turnarounds. No one else could do that, but God in his power and, and might uh, brings massive turnarounds. So God can say, all that I have planned will come to pass. So there's much to reassure us. But this is still mysterious Stuff. Our God is still a mysterious God. We are left, if we look a little bit closer, with truths that are uh, slightly mind-bending. Just to kind of boil it down into a nutshell. A holy God raises up an unholy people to do his work, God remains holy. Those people are unholy. That is like taking a step onto the threshold of profound mystery. God is holy. He's pure. He's incorruptible. He is just. He is perfect. He doesn't just slip out of holiness. He doesn't just set holiness aside. No, he is perfectly holy. And he is perfectly in control of world events, even when things like the Babylonians seem to come. Personally or internationally, when there are those dark times, God is perfectly in control of all world events. He, he raises sinful people and he gets rebellious nations to do his bidding. God is holy. And those people and those nations are nevertheless still responsible for everything they do, which is unrighteous. If you think, if I think, that I can get my head around that, I am deluded. If you think that you can get your head around all the mysteries of God... You're deluded in the nicest possible way. Um, God is holy. We are nevertheless always responsible for what we do. We see, again, these, this kind of profound mystery also in the Gospels when we consider what Jesus suffered. Indeed, as he was anticipating his own death on the cross... His own betrayal in, uh, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 22. He said this, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Again, we're on the threshold of absolute mystery. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Almighty God in heaven had decreed before time began, that Jesus 
would suffer and die on the cross for our sins. God decided that in advance. Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of sinful men, enabling that plan to continue. Judas was responsible for his sin. Even though God had decreed that Jesus should die on the cross. And so, in Acts, we see again, reflecting on the same truths, we see the believers praying together. As they pray, they say this in Acts 4 and verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If you can get your head around that, you're being unreal. We, how could we get our head around that? All these unrighteous people, all these people who are demonstrating their sin and rebellion against God, conspiring against Jesus, conspiring together to kill Jesus, yet they were doing what God in his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God is holy. God is in control. The Babylonians, Judas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, all the people of Israel are responsible for their sin. And so are we. We are responsible for our sin. Babylonians didn't deserve mercy. They got these five woes. We do not deserve mercy. There's one way of reading this, and it's to see that these woes are towards the Babylonians, but it's also woes that come in the direction of anyone who is living uh, without God in their lives, who's not living uh, by faith in God. That is frightening. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul tells us in Romans. And yet, how glorious, as we read these five woes, we know that Jesus took all of them in our place. If you look in particular at the fourth woe, and in verse 16 in particular, describes this woe here of the, of the Babylonians getting people drunk in order to humiliate them. And then the woe comes to the Babylonians. Verse 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. That was the woe that was coming round to the Babylonians. But what did we see as we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Lord, all things are possible for you. Abba, Father, take this cup. Take this cup that is coming round from the Lord's right hand, full of disgrace, full of shame, full of punishment, full of woe. Take that cup. If there's any way 
take it from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And so we see Jesus agonizing in the garden with the most, with the most painful prayer. Perhaps the only prayer that really has not been answered, was not answered. Because his heavenly father, our heavenly father, knew that there was no alternative. Jesus would drink the cup on our behalf so that we would not experience the woe and the punishment that he took in our place. Jesus drank that cup for us. Hallelujah. So, a painful prayer yet again. Met with answers that do provide some reassurance, but they're still puzzling answers from a mysterious God. How do we respond? Firstly, how do we respond to mind-bending doctrine uh, when we are more aware of what we do not know and of what we do not fully understand about God than what we do? How do we respond when we read some of those verses? How do we respond to what we've just heard in Habakkuk this morning? What we have been looking at briefly in some ways is the doctrine of providence. God is in control. God is holy. God is never thwarted in anything he does. God is not taken by surprise. God need never say, oh, I'm sorry, I really dropped the ball with that one. Oh, I'm sorry, I I didn't know that that was about to happen. I'm, I'm sorry, you see, before time began, I decided to be in control of some things, but not others. I'm sorry, I would like to cover the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's my intention. Actually, I'm afraid I can't guarantee that because it all kind of depends on what people do. No, God is provident. God is in control. God is holy. God is in control in the midst of our darkest nights. God was in control in the midst of Jesus' darkest night. How do we respond to mind-bending doctrine? Here's how I think we respond. Here's how I believe Habakkuk went on to respond in chapter 3, which we'll look at another time. He responded in worship and in wonder. I'm reminded, as I've been preparing this week, of what Paul says at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, when he has spent 11 chapters glorying, explaining all that he's able to explain about our wonderful gospel. And he gets to the end of chapter 11. And um, it's probably foolish of me to have favorite verses. But I don't know many more profound than this. In verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul responds with worship. When he, when he gets to the end of his mental abilities 
to handle revelation that God's brought his way. He bows a knee uh, to worship God. You know, uh, when I was seven and my brother was 16, it was one massive mismatch. And he could just demonstrate very easily when wrestling uh, that he was superior. He was stronger. He was bigger. He was cleverer. Since then, uh, we've both grown up a fair bit. And the number of years between us has remained the same. And yet, we've, we've both kind of gone through education. We've, we've both been working. Uh, we both know how to drive a car. Uh, we're both involved in the life of the church. We, um, we're both married as it happens. We, we both have children. And we're about the same height now. Um, vaguely the same size. Uh, so perhaps I should suggest a rematch. But as I have developed, as I have matured, as I've, as I've learnt, as I've grown up, I'm more like my brother than I was. As you and I grow up in our faith, as we develop, as we experience more, as we find out more in the Word, we, we don't get closer to knowing the greatness of God, in a sense. It's not like the more we get to know about God, the smaller He becomes to the point where we're kind of level pegging. The more we get to know about God, there will be times, as it were, if we were, if we were walking around in our own mind, we, thought, you know, we might be over here, we might think, well, if I really develop in this area, I could be like super impressive at mental arithmetic. If I, if I really develop over here, maybe uh, in my life, I could develop, I could maybe run as fast as it's possible to run. I, if, if, I did, if I chose to develop in that way, um, if I chose to develop this area of my mind, I might be able to develop the uh, quite astonishing memory. But I will, I will get to the edge of my mind when there are things beyond that that I cannot comprehend. I still know what the Bible says, and I, the Bible tells me, without apologizing, what is true. God is in control of everything. In all things. All things from him, through him, to him. All things work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I can I can, I can know the scripture and I can glory in it. doesn't necessarily mean that I can, I can trace out the paths in God's mind. Oh yes, I can see how God is holy and the Babylonians are unholy, but he can do that and still be holy. I, I can't work that out. And maybe we encounter situations that we can't actually, we can't actually work it out. We can just come time and again. We can just say, why, 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 why God, why God? And we can get a hardness of heart. Or we can get to the end, we can get to the edge of our minds and we can decide, God, this is the place where I bow down and I worship you. You are infinitely greater than I can ever comprehend. That's how 
we can respond. How also, how do we respond personally when life doesn't make sense? How do we respond personally when we encounter uh, dark nights, when we have fully loaded painful prayers? How do we respond as a church when there are situations that corporately might puzzle us? How do we respond when stuff happens in the nation that is baffling? Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. We've seen how the Babylonians responded to God. They ignored him. They got puffed up. They started worshipping themselves. What about the righteous? But the righteous will live by his faith. In fact, in, in the Hebrew, in that text... There are only three words. Righteous, faith, live. The righteous, by faith, will live. How do, we, how do we respond in the darkest nights? We respond with faith. By faith. Trusting in God. I'm aware this is no trivial solution. If we encounter a friend or a relative who's really going through the mill, we don't just want to flippantly say, Come on. Trust in God. As though it were a trivial thing that they were experiencing. This is no trivial thing. Because Habakkuk does not see with his eyes any evidence of improvement in the natural in his nation at that time. He's been talking with God, having conversation with God. Meanwhile, he still observes a nation that is messed up. And we know from Scripture as a whole, he's not going to see improvement very soon. That's why the Lord begins his response thus. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. In a sense, God is saying, get ready for the fact that you might have to wait for a while until I deal with the Babylonians. You might have to wait. In fact, Habakkuk, this might not happen in your lifetime. It's certain. It's a revelation. There's an appointed time. God has appointed a time when he's going to deal with the Babylonians. Speaks of the end. It will not prove false. But it will linger in your own perception of time. It will appear to linger. So how are you going to live? Live by faith. It's for no reason that we have scripture that tells us that we live by faith, not by sight. It doesn't mean that God isn't going to act. Long waits can be followed by God's suddenly breaking in. And so if you've been hearing in the news recently, for a long time, there have been 33 Chilean miners trapped underground 
for a long time. A dark time. But then suddenly, they break through. And so, we're led to believe on Wednesday, they should all be out. Because they've now, they've now broken through. Suddenly, they've broken through. But it was a long wait. And sometimes we can experience the same. Where we're holding on to the promises of God. We're believing that at a certain appointed time, suddenly he's going to break in. And yet we have long waits. And scripture is littered. Well, Hebrews 11 is littered. With believers who had a long wait. They were believing for promises that maybe even they themselves didn't see. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now it might be, again, uh, similar to when we were looking at Habakkuk last week, it might be that for the vast majority of us at this present time, we're not experiencing what we might describe as as a dark night, as a dark time. And so the challenge, therefore, for us is to do what we've seen over these two weeks, is to so cling to God, so press into God, that when, we, when crisis comes, as it were, we know where the solid ground is. We know where to stand. We know what path we can navigate to get through. So that when it's dark, we still know where to go. When the lights are up, you know, at quarter past 12, the lights are on, the sun is shining, this place is light. It's evident where the stage is. It's clear where the chairs are. We can observe the flags. We can watch the clock, if that's what we've been doing for the last little while. Um, everything's clear. We can kind of remember, oh, I've seen so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're over there. We can, we can see with our eyesight. We need to be so sure of God... We need to be so sure of some of the doctrine that we've looked at. But when the lights go off and it is dark and it's midnight, you can't see anything, we still remember where the truth is. We still remember what the scripture teaches us. We still know who our God is. We're, we're, if not comfortable, we are at least familiar with the idea that God is a mystery to us. And so when the crisis comes, God willing, we're found to be those who like Habakkuk. Yeah, really wrestling. But at the same time, wrestling is pushing through, meeting with God, finding reassurance, and also bowing down. Bowing down in worship. Let's pray.